Lord, we thank you so much for the opportunity for us to be together and fellowship in your word. We ask that you'd fill us with your spirit. We thank you so much for all that you've provided us in the word of God that you've given us and having the Holy Spirit to open our eyes to it. Uh, We thank you, Lord, that you've regenerated your children. We thank you for that, uh, just the, the fact that we see in that wonderful hymn, Thine eye diffused a quickening ray, and uh, you awoke us, and our chains fell off. We thank you for freeing us to come and, and follow you. And uh, we pronounce you, Jesus, as, as Lord, and we thank you that you've enabled us to bow the knee and to confess you as such. And we pray that many more would do so that you would use us to exalt your name today and this Christmas season. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. Uh, Dave, really appreciate Dave uh, doing the lesson last week on the humiliation of Christ. That stair step down from Philippians was just awesome. Just to be reminded that God emptied himself, became a bondservant, man humbled, not just to death, but death on a cross so uh the way to exaltation for christ was to go downstairs the way for us to be exalted is to follow christ and to go downstairs is the way up and so that's what we're going to be talking about today is the exaltation of christ Uh, before we do so uh, let me um Go back to a couple announcements. Fossils in Faith, Dr. Matthew McLean will be here in a couple weeks. Uh, just a point of clarification. These are This is a four-part lecture series in two successive Sundays. So he'll be having one lesson at, at the 9.30 hour, a different lesson at 10.30. Uh, he'll be talking about the fossil record. Does it support naturalistic evolution? Adam to apes, does it matter? And then he'll also be preaching on the Lazarus and rich man and how that relates to evidence. And then all creation groans looking at the fall curse uh, motif in Romans eight. So again, four part lecture series. Uh, By the way, Matthew McLean, he's the paleontologist whose research went viral in 2015. I don't know if I shared that with you guys when he found evidence of uh, the cannibalistic nature of the T-Rex his team they found uh this bone in idaho i think it was idaho or no wyoming uh that had it was a t-rex hip bone that had t-rex teeth marks in it and they published that research and it just blew up and um and so he's the guy that's going to be here and he's just a really amazing guy if you guys remember him from about four years ago so i'd encourage you to come and to invite friends we've got plenty of invites in the back if you want to grab a stack as far as where we're at in our schedule here um is it possible to get the stage lights off i don't know if that's possible there um so after this class we go obviously to christmas service winter seminar and then we'll be back in january january 12th for evangelism uh so very excited about that class after evangelism we'll have two sessions of church history so that's how we'll move through 2020 So the main question that we're asking this morning is, how does Christ's first coming differ from his second coming? Last week, we talked about the humiliation of Christ. We celebrate 
during this time of year, Christ coming as a baby in a manger and walking amongst us as a man. Again, Dave did a great job with that. But why don't you open up to Luke chapter 24. This is where we began this course was Luke chapter 24. Where remember Jesus is walking with the disciples on the road to Emmaus and there. Eyes are restrained from recognizing him. It's actually a theme that you see throughout the ministry of Christ is that there's things that are hidden from people. Other things are revealed. And remember in verse 25, he says, O foolish ones and slow to believe all the prophets have spoken, ought not the Christ. It was a divine necessity for Christ, the Messiah, to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory. Suffering is what Dave talked about last week, the humiliation of Christ. Entering into his glory is what we're talking about today. And then in verse 27, it says, And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded them all in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself, both pertaining to his suffering and to his glory. And so there's Old Testament scriptures that point us towards both aspects of Christ's work. If you look down at verse 46, when he appears to all the apostles, and by the way, remember he says, why are you doubting? And he tells them to touch and handle him. So this is, this is flesh and blood. I'm not just a spirit. He also eats right in front of them to demonstrate that a resurrected body is a real body and it can digest food. And um, and so then he begins to speak and open up their eyes to Moses and the prophets, the Tanakh. Verse 46, thus it is written, thus it was necessary. That's that same word, divine necessity for Christ to suffer and to rise. So. When he says to rise, he's equating glory with resurrection. And indeed, this is what we find in the Old Testament. The word glory, when it shows up in context about Christ, it's pointing to this idea of the resurrection of Christ that kicks off all these other exaltation type of of doctrines. When you continue in the context, verse 49, behold, I send the promise. So he's going to send the Holy Spirit, tells them to tarry. And then he departs. Verse 51, he ascends up into heaven and they worship him and go with joy. So suffering, glory, suffering and glory. As we talk about the glory aspect of Christ this morning, um, we're talking about what we call in theology the state of exaltation, which traditionally it kicks off with the resurrection, um, but it also includes the ascension of Christ, what we're going to call the session of Christ. What's up, Tim? And the intercession of Christ and then second coming. I'm just going to really do an overview. I'm, I'm not proposing to dig down very deep, especially on the second coming. This is not a class in eschatology. We'll hit eschatology next year. So I'm going to hit these fairly quickly and try to leave some room for questions at the end. So let's talk about, first of all, this 
aspect of the exaltation, the resurrection of Christ. Um, we saw it right here in, in in Luke. When you go through the book of Acts, you could you could pretty much subtitle the book of Acts is the church's testimony of the resurrection of Christ. It's like every page there's something else about the resurrection of Jesus Christ right there in the uh, the day of Pentecost. This hope that fills hearts and a couple of things that accrue to us from the real bodily resurrection of Christ is, first of all, our regeneration is connected to it. So Christ's resurrection ensures and is connected to our regeneration. So like in first Peter one, three, for instance, Peter says we have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ Jesus from the dead. Our being born again is through or by means of Christ's resurrection. These are spiritual realities that aren't always easy for us to get our minds around. But if you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're born again, you've been given new spiritual life, and that spiritual life has come out of the open egg of Christ's resurrection he was raised and now he's granted you spiritual life to be born again through his resurrection we also connect biblically the resurrection to justification like in romans four twenty five, where paul says that jesus was put to death for our trespasses we talked about that last week that's part of the humiliation of christ and raised because of our justification. That's a very interesting idea that Paul makes a causal connection between our justification and the resurrection of Christ. What in the world does he mean? Well, we know that all have sinned, right? And the wages of sin is what? Death. How many sins did Jesus commit? Zero. But Jesus died for our sins. At least Brian and I. I know he died for Brian and I's sins, right? And so Jesus dies for our sins. And if the father has been satisfied with Christ's death, there's no reason for him to stay in the grave anymore because he didn't commit his own sins. He died for our sins. And if our sins have been justified in the mind of the father, then Jesus Christ is raised up. And so he is raised because of our justification. It's causal. The father looks down at the son, his death. He says, I, this now satisfies my sense of justice in my mind. I am now pronouncing justification on the elect. Now we know that justification doesn't happen for you and I until actually in history, we place our faith in Christ, but in the eternal counsels of God, once Christ has, has satisfied justice, now there's no reason for Jesus to stay in the grave. He is raised because of our justification. It's amazing fact, spiritual fact. Thirdly, the resurrection of Christ is connected with our future resurrection bodies. First Corinthians 614 says, uh, Paul says, and God raised the Lord uh, and will also raise us up by his power. Second Corinthians 414, who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you. In his presence, he will raise us with Jesus. 
And, and then the whole book of, or the whole chapter of 1 Corinthians 15 deals with this, this idea that we are raised in Christ and he's the first fruits. So he's kind of like the first installment of resurrection and all those who are part of his body, we will be raised as well in our resurrected bodies. So there's a lot about the resurrection that connects directly to us. Christ is raised literally, physically glorified body. Um, he he's handled, he eats, he digests. Uh, he's not just a spirit and his resurrection has theological implications. It's why we're born again. It's why we're justified and it guarantees our future resurrection. If there is no resurrection, Paul says we are of all men most pitiable. Um, and, and by the way, the resurrection, we must believe in the resurrection in order to be saved, right? Romans 10 Whoever shall call, if you if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Flip that around. If you don't believe that Christ has been raised from the dead, you shall not be saved. And so it's a it's a cardinal doctrine of the Christian faith, and it behooves our our meditation and and worship. Connected to that is the ascension of Christ. Um theologians will will speak of the ascension of Christ as the linchpin or prerequisite of Christ's other saving works. There's things that accrue to us because Christ has indeed ascended. Um, And so let's talk about, we just read Luke 24 about the ascension of Christ, uh, but we could also make a few other statements about this fact the ascension is prerequisite for the subsequent saving works of Christ. That is his session. We'll talk about what that means. Pentecost intercession and second coming. Um, so for instance, let's, uh, let's turn to acts two. you know, when Peter gives that, that sermon on the day of Pentecost, He makes this connection. Uh, We'll pick it up at verse 33. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, that's exaltation, that's ascension. And having received from the father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this day, which you now see and hear. Um, So look at verse 36. Therefore, let. All actually, let's stick in verse 34 for David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let us let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. You crucified him. But God, in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, has raised him. And from that position of exaltation, he is now granting the promise of the Holy Spirit as you see this day. So Peter makes the connection between resurrection, ascension at the right hand of the Father, pouring out of the Holy Spirit. So the ascension of Christ is is integral. Uh, secondly, we'd say the ascension was also necessary for Christ to send the Spirit. We just mentioned that. Jesus says, John sixteen seven. I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. If I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go away, I will send him to you. 
So Jesus predicts this. This verse used to really trouble me. I, I've mentioned this in this class before that uh, if Jesus were standing right in front of me, if I were Peter and the guys, and Jesus says, it's good that I go away, I would be just like Peter, nah, it's not good that you go away. You need to stay with us. No, he says, no, it's good that I go away because if I go away, I'm not just going to be limited to one place at one time. I can't, I'm not just going to be with you. I'll now send the spirit and I will be with all believers everywhere simultaneously through the Holy Spirit. And so if we can really grapple with that from what, yeah, it just blows your mind. What Jesus is saying is we are in a better position than the 12 disciples who walk the earth with Christ in the flesh. We are in, a, in an enviable position to have the Holy Spirit with each of us. We're communing with Christ through his spirit. And as we're meeting here at Cornerstone, we've got people all around the world that are also communing with Christ. And so he's not limited to one place at one time through the spirit. Uh, we also see that Christ's intercession also comes about as a result of his ascension. So, for instance, Hebrews 8, I, I love all the great intercession passages. Hebrews 8, you got Romans 8, of course, we get a preview of it in John 17 with the high priestly prayer. But if you just look over at, at Hebrews, just a glorious book. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law. Implication, if he's in heaven, he's carrying out this priestly work that is unique. And then we look over at like Romans 8 and he's he's making intercession for the saints uh, according to the and then Hebrews reminds us it's according to the order of Melchizedek. And uh, finally, it is clear that Christ could come again only if he went away in the first place. Um, so in Acts 3.21, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time of restoring all things. I, some of these musts and it is necessary type terms are kind of confusing to me just as a man. But it's like it's basically the Lord's telling us this is a divine necessity. In other words, this is something that's been decreed through the wisdom of God that Jesus is going to be received up into heaven at the right hand of the Father. And it's necessary in the divine decree um, until all things have been restored and then he'll be sent back down. So in the mind of God. And I don't completely understand it. According to God's wisdom, it was necessary that Christ ascend, have all of his enemies put under his feet. And and part of that will happen in the second coming. So that's the that's in a nutshell, the ascension of Christ. There's so much more that we could talk about. Um, but part of what's inside of the ascension, some theologians don't really divide these into different topics. They'll I think it's Thomas Watson says one of the fruit of ascension is the session of Christ. The fact that he's seated at the right hand of the father. And so let's talk about that for a moment. Uh, it's this is kind of we don't tend to use this term today the way older theologians used it. Session 
that sounds like, uh, you know, hey, you're at a conference and did you go to the first session? Are you in the second session or or um, but session? The literal idea is is like to sit um, and kind of this arises out of the idea of to sit in a place of authority. I don't know if there's any Shakespeare fans in here. Have any of you guys ever seen the Kenneth Branagh's Henry V? Anybody ever seen Henry V? Am I the only one? Okay, I'm okay. A couple, Katie, because I've made her watch it. Um, <clears throat> so the, one of the opening scenes, you've got Henry V, who's played by Kenneth Branagh, who in the movie looks 17 years old. I, I don't think he's much older than that. But the opening scene shows all of these just really majestic knight type people and earls and whatnot old and bearded and they're all bowing to the king who you can't see when he walks in and he turns around he sits down in his chair where is my gracious lord of canterbury and he looks like a little kid but all these people have been bowing to him and now he sits on his throne and it's so clear this guy is large and in charge everybody's given him honor and he can just call anybody to his throne whom he wishes it's just an awesome opening scene and when i think of the session of christ that that partially comes to mind save the fact that in the metaphor you've got god the father whose throne is attached to god the son who is at his right hand which is metaphorically the highest position of favorhood right you want your favorite right to your right hand it's like the father says, this is my favorite. This is the guy whom I've granted uh, authority. And so as we as we talk about the session or the seating of Christ, um, we think of passages like Psalm 110, uh, verse 1, for instance. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So at this moment, part of what's happening in the session is God and his divine sovereignty and decree. There's things happening in human history that are described as the making or the putting of Christ's enemies under his feet, uh, which is kind of an odd thought when you when you think about it, um, that. All cry, all the father would really have to do is just snap his fingers, not even snap his fingers, just will it. And all of the enemies could immediately be placed underneath Christ's feet. Correct. But God, again, in his divine decree, it is necessary that day word in his divine decree has deemed that through human history, that this is going to happen over time, that Christ's enemies are going to over time be placed under his feet and that kind of that's why we have this terminology in the bible some of the verses say his enemies are under his feet other verses say his enemies will be put under his feet what gives why the seeming contradiction it's that old prophetic aorist right it's so certain to occur it's as if it has occurred even though it's going to occur in human history does that make sense there's certain things that are so certain like our glorification in, in Romans 8, our glorification is so certain to occur in the mind of God that it's you are glorified. You know, whoever was called justified elect, so on and so forth, is also glorified, even though we know in actual human history it's happening over time. 
that's that's the idea here with the placing of Christ's enemies under his feet. You could also take a look at Hebrews one uh, when he had made purification for sins. He sat down at the right hand of majesty and high. That's the session. The idea here is it's not like Christ is sitting down playing tiddlywinks. Uh, he's just sitting down doing nothing. It's it's the concept, the metaphor of he has finished the work of atonement and he's now sitting in a place of authority. Um, and so so that would be the idea. You've also you could also think of Ephesians 1, 21 and 22, uh, 20 and 21. Uh, God raised him from the dead and what? Seated at the right hand, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion in every name that is named. And so the ascension gives forth this fruit of what we would call the session of Christ. And it's just a a beautiful doctrine. By the way, uh, kind of an aside, I have to be careful about these asides. They get me in time trouble. But um, you've got. Paul saying in first Corinthians six, remember, don't you realize that you're going to judge the angels? It's like Christ is at the right hand of the father waiting for enemies and, and his judgment time is coming. We're seated with Christ in the heavenlies. We will also participate in some way in this judgment. We're kind of getting ahead of ourselves a little bit. This judgment thing that's coming you and I, true believers, will participate in that judgment. Judging angels. What in the world does that mean? Does that mean we're going to be judging Michael and Gabriel? Uh, most theologians over the years have said, no, that's probably not it. They're, they're without sin. They're, they're perfect. Uh, what other angels could we think of? Well, there are the fallen angels. So there's demons. Will we be involved in Christ's judgment in some sense of demons? Uh, we don't really have any more information than what Paul tells us First Corinthians 6. But some theologians have speculated that part of what we might be involved in is actually giving testimony against fallen angels. Maybe the very fallen angels that have gone about trying to tempt us and have been involved in and maybe bringing persecutors against individuals in the church that we're rendering testimony against them. And then the father will actually place them under our feet and under Christ's feet and render judgment, cast them out into the lake of fire. So that's just kind of sobering to think that as Christ is waiting for his enemies to be placed underneath his feet, we are part of the body of Christ. We're in Christ and our enemies will be placed under our feet, including the devil and uh, and the demons just just befuddling. Let's talk um, about another fruit of the ascension, as Thomas Watson says, and and that is the intercession of Christ. <clears throat> the intercession of Christ, um, which um, we could, you know, this seems to be part of Christ's high priestly work, uh, and it. And while justification is the atonement is the ground of our salvation, there are still things that are being executed to get us to that place of glorification, to get us to persevere. And so it it seems to be part of his high priestly 
uh, work as he is praying for all the saints. Uh, and so in view of that, the Bible does draw a connection between our salvation and Christ's intercession uh, for us. Uh, you might want to take a look at Romans 8.28. This is probably one of the most popular intercession passages. Uh, so we have here. Um, where am I losing it? Yeah, it's Romans 8. Why am I not finding? Uh, I know where it is. Where's Christ's intercession in the chapter? I'm having a brain hemorrhage here. Can any fine theologians help me? Where is it, Brian? You're my concordance. Oh, okay. Verse 34. Yeah, so who is he who condemns? It is Christ who has died. Furthermore, is also risen. Who even at the right hand of God, who makes intercession for us. So notice this is on the back end of that great chain of salvation that starts with God's foreknowledge, predestination, leading up through calling and glorification. So who can be against God's elect? Who can bring a charge against them? Who's the one who condemns? And so part of this whole package is Christ dying, rising, his session, which is connected to him making intercession for us. It's all joined together as part of the package of what Christ is doing. I think it's Robert Murray McChain that says, man, if, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies, yet the distance makes no difference. He is praying for me, and he's praying for you. The fact that he's seated at the right hand of authority and he's praying for me and you um, is a thought that can well up on our hearts when we're being tempted. Um, when you're tempted to fall back into sin, when you've fallen back into sin and you're having trouble repenting, to think of Christ's intercession for you. I think it's John MacArthur that said, if Christ were to cease praying for us, uh, we would all apostatize immediately. But because he does pray for us, there's no chance that the elect will apostatize. Um, he is that his prayers are that powerful. And I, I love the, the precursor that we have. You guys, I'm sure very, most of you are very familiar with it. In, in John 17, where Jesus is praying for his disciples, but then he turns in verse 20 and begins to pray for everybody who's going to believe that includes us. And then down in verse 24, it's just befuddling. I desire that they whom you gave me may be with me where I am. So, Father, I want all of my kids, all of my brethren to be with me that they may behold my glory. He wants us to behold his glory seated at the right hand of the father, which you have given me for you loved uh, me before the foundation of the world. You loved me, and here's what I want from you. I want them, the ones whom you've given me to give authority. You've given me authority to give eternal life to as many as you've given me. I'm giving them eternal life, but now I'm asking you 
to bring them to me so that they can see my glory. There's something there, and it's hard for us to put our minds around this. We still, in some ways, our eyes are veiled. But when we hear these whispering conversations between the Father and the Son and how Jesus wants us to see his glory, I don't know about you, but when I'm in a certain frame of mind, I read that and I'm like, that's cool. Which shows I have no idea what Jesus is talking about. The Father knows, the Son knows, there is something that we can't quite grasp yet that Jesus really desperately wants us to experience. And it's really that thing that's been going on since Genesis through Revelation is God says, I will be their God and they will be my people. Is there something about being near God apart from sin that is going to bring us the greatest joy and happiness that is possible? And Jesus is praying that that will happen. And when he prays for things to happen, it happens. Um, And so this is part of the intercessory work of Christ, that he's praying that you and I will see his glory. And when is that going to happen? Well, for some of us in this room, it's going to happen when we pass away. Right. We we've mentioned earlier today, Thomas Watson. Guess what? Thomas Watson is with Jesus. Some of you guys were listening to Spurgeon this week. Guess what? Spurgeon is with Jesus. He's beholding his glory. And so some of us in this room, I, I was thinking just this week, I, I think more morbidly, the older I get. Um, but I'm laying in bed and I'm thinking, I am going to die. It's going to happen at some point. I'm going to die. And I don't know when that's going to happen. It's not a bad thing, right? Good point. If we're thinking of it properly, because Jesus Christ, we're not going to go through anything that he hasn't already gone through. He died. Right? I will die. I get to follow in his footsteps. And when I die, I get to go see his glory, something that he's been praying for. <clears throat> and then I'll be like, now I get it. Why was I so caught up with all these trivial things in my lifetime? Now I understand. Um, and so we're, we're all going to we'll get there through death. But the other way that we can get there is through the second coming. So let's talk about the second coming. Finally, <clears throat> um, and again, we're not going to get into this in a full on eschatological lesson sense. But really just to say that, you know, Christ says in my father's house, there's many mansions, many rooms. If we're not so, I would have told you that I but I go to prepare a place for you um, and I will come again and will take you where to myself that where I am, you may be also. I'm going to my father's house. I'm preparing a place when I come back. I'm going to bring you to that place. I'm going to bring you to my father's house. And so, and we will be able to experience his glory. And so for the Christian, there's two different ways we're going to experience his glory, either dying or we're going to be brought there by Christ in his second coming. And, uh, and so we get to experience that Jesus Christ, when he comes He'll bring glory 
Uh, he brings eternal life. He brings joy. Uh, we're just kind of flying by these ideas. Uh, Colossians 3, 4, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. When he appears, we'll appear. Right? How's that going to happen? Well, First Thessalonians 4, we will be caught up together with him in the clouds. Uh, therefore, do not fear those of your loved ones who have died. It's OK. <clears throat> They're going to be resurrected. Uh, Paul fills that out a little more in Philippians, says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. If we happen to be present when the Lord comes back, then we will appear with him in glory via the rapture. Uh, when we get to the doctrine of eschatology, we'll flesh this out more as we talk about um, kind of the, the road map of end times. Uh, by the way, anybody have the white tomb of glory? Anybody have this? So this is, if you guys don't have this systematic theology, I'd highly recommend it. This is uh, John MacArthur, Dr. Mayhew, systematic theology, biblical doctrine. It's a, it's a killer book. Really awesome. Yeah, and it's big enough where you could, you could kill somebody with it if you dropped it on their head. Uh, but he does a, uh, they do an excellent job in here in, in just in a real summary fashion, unpacking uh, the glorified Christ and what happens leading to his return. Heavenly intercessor, rapture, judgment, second coming millennium, great white throne judgment, eternity, future. And, and part of what they do in this shortened article is they've actually picked up some stuff from Dr. Barrick, who was one of my professors, who just in a nice, tight little summary does an amazing job talking about this. I want to read just one little section where he says, uh, talking about Hebrews 2, 5 to 14, reveals that we do not yet see everything in subjection to Christ. Verse 8 because his meditorial kingdom has not commenced. In the end, even the currently reigning prince of this world, Satan, will come underneath Christ's reign in kingdom power. As long as Satan reigns as prince of this world, the kingdom of Christ has not yet been commenced or established. For that reason, Jesus taught his disciples to pray, your kingdom come. And then Revelation 22, verse 20 says, Amen, come, Lord Jesus. Part of what Dr. Barrick is pointing out there is, is we live in this in-between spot where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father over the universal kingdom, waiting for his enemies to be placed underneath his feet. But Ephesians 2 tells us who's the prince of the darkness of the air. Who's still called prince right now? The devil. And 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 uh, first John says the whole world, John three lies in the lap of the devil. The devil roams around as a lion seeking whom he may devour. But there's coming a day when the archangel is going to grab the devil and he's going to throw him in a pit and cover it up. This is a bottomless pit so that he should tempt the nations no longer. This isn't a guy that's on a chain going around seeking who he may devour. He is completely covered up for a thousand years and Christ will reign from Jerusalem and he will be the most benevolent dictator that the world has ever seen. 
That's the return of Christ proper. That's the reign of Christ proper on the earth for a thousand years. And if that weren't enough to fully justify God, this shows you how depraved the human heart is. Even though there's no devil on the planet. Some people ask, let me set this up. Some people ask this question. Why in the world is God going to put the devil in a pit and then release him after a thousand year reign of Christ? Why? What is the purpose of that? Well, first of all, remember day. It is necessary. God's just he has sovereign necessities all over this road to salvation for his own wisdom's sake. He does certain things that aren't always observable or noticeable to us. But just think about this. that After a thousand year reign of Christ, no devil to tempt human beings. Perfect environment. Nobody can blame the environment. Right. Nobody can say I had a bad dad. I had a bad mom. Nobody can blame global warming. There won't be any of that. Christ for a thousand years will reign in righteousness. And what will thousands, perhaps millions of human beings do at the end of the millennial period? They will join with the devil against Christ. Does that not establish the righteousness of God to judge and put enemies underneath Christ's feet and to cast people into the lake of fire once and for all? Look what human beings do. It's nobody will question the existence of God. There he is. Nobody will question the goodness of God. They will be experiencing his goodness throughout the millennial period. With goodness, with existence. It's just like after Jesus Christ raised Lazarus from the dead. You have this evidence right staring you in the face. What do people do? We got to kill him. People will rise up. They'll go against Christ. God will judge final. You have the. Final great white throne judgment. Christ will be all in all and he'll hand the kingdom over to the father that the father may be all in all. Let's talk about just some just some final applications. The, the overall application of the exaltation of Christ is just like we see the disciples do at the end of the ascension of Christ. What do they do? They worship. They're filled with joy. And as they worship, when we really worship the risen Christ. And as we're filled with the spirit now, that erupts into joy and it erupts into praise. And then it erupts into what you see all throughout the book of Acts. And that is preaching the gospel of repentance for forgiveness of sins. They just can't help themselves. People run throughout the book of Acts proclaiming Christ who has changed their lives. So I believe that one of the primary or one of the uh, the applications of the exaltation of Christ is gospel witness. Jesus Christ has saved us. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. He sent out the Holy Spirit. And when we get filled with the Holy Spirit, we erupt in praise. And praise is a close cousin to preaching. They're, They're very similar. You know, when people get excited about stuff, what do they talk about? They talk about what they're excited. Everybody's all excited about the impeachment right now. You guys uh, enjoy your your Christmas time with your family. People are going to be talking about the impeachment. People are going to be talking about football. People are going to be talking about the latest movie. Whatever they're excited about, it just comes out, right? When we exalt Christ in our lives, it moves into our lips. And it's just almost impossible not to give praise and to preach the gospel. So I think meditation on the exaltation of Christ leads us that way. 
Also, meditation on the exaltation of Christ reminds us that humility comes before exaltation, suffering before glory. Jesus Christ suffered, and we get to walk in his footsteps. And it's the privilege of brothers and sisters to suffer for his sake. I think as Christians, we just we have to remember to put our sufferings in this exaltation context that when you and I suffer in this life, it's not plan B, it's plan A. We must go down to go up. God is not like out of control. He's not like, why are my people suffering? I did not see this coming. No, suffering is the path to glory. And so when we suffer, whether it's health issues, you're getting persecuted, you've been horribly mistreated by a family member, you've been misunderstood, you've been maligned. Well, guess what? Jesus was hit. He was spit on. He was maligned. Um, He died. And yet that all came before he was raised and exalted to the right hand of the father. And 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 the thing we need to remember is whatever sufferings we've gone through. These sufferings will not be isolated from a thing called judgment where God's going to take your enemies and my enemies, death, sin, Satan, persecutors, and put them under Christ's feet and your feet. So it's not the end of the day if you suffer. Judgment day is coming. Exaltation is here. And and you get to participate in that. We'll all be participating in the crown of Christ. Let's go ahead and pray and then I'll take questions up here. Sorry, I did it again. I'll have to take questions up front. Lord, we thank you so much for the doctrine of your exaltation, what that does, Lord, to encourage us with our own sufferings. And we thank you that we can just contemplate the, the intercession of Christ that is being uh, laid up always bef- uh, for our own perseverance and glory. Uh, we thank you that we are seated in some mysterious way in Christ. And that when he returns, we will appear with him in glory. Lord, we thank you, Jesus, that you've gone to prepare a place for us. And when you come back, if we're alive on this earth, we will be with you. And uh, and yet at the same time, we thank you for your coming and judgment and how that you will take care of all righteousness, even through the millennial period, uh, placing the devil in the pit, giving people an opportunity to live underneath kind dictatorship. And then ultimately showing yourself to be just and righteous when you judge. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.